Hey everyone, welcome back to Adhering Apologetics, wherever you may be. Thank you for joining us. As always, we're brought to you by you with your support on patreon.com slash adhering apologetics. Uh, today I'm here with Dr. Joshua Swamidas. He wrote a really good book recently called The Genealogical Adam and Eve. He has an MD and a PhD, and he's the Associate Professor of Laboratory and Genomic Medicine at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, Dr. Josh, welcome. How are you doing? Oh, thanks for having me. I'm doing well. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you. We're going to be talking a little bit about the idea of evolution, this book that you wrote, uh, The Genealogical Adam and Eve, all kinds of fun stuff for everyone tuning in. So just to start off, could you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do in case someone doesn't know who you are? Yeah, well, I'm, 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 a, I'm really not that, that well-known. <laughs> <laughs> Probably most people don't know who I am. I'm, I'm just a, a regular scientist here at Washington University in St. Louis, it's the middle of the country. Um, I'm, uh, it's a it's a good school. I mean, I, I was uh, born in California, though, so I, I you know we, we had a very coastal bias. <laughs> but um, it's a it's a top five medical school. I've been really fortunate to be here, a professor, for about ten years, and um, a few years back got tenure here. And most of my time, I spend doing uh, computational biology research, a lot of stuff looking at how drugs are metabolized and become toxic, and how to make them safer uh, using artificial intelligence. And that's what I've been doing really for most of my career. So I'm curious, obviously, you're a scientist and a doctor by training more. I guess not. You didn't go the medical route. You just got the MD and went to uh, clinical work or working in studies. Uh, but what got you interested in like this question of like Adam and Eve and like all this stuff? Because I think you talk, it's a little bit of an uncommon route to get into. A lot of people might go into like theology for questions like this. But what got you into like this big question regarding Adam and Eve? Well, I mean, isn't that a question a lot of people bring to science? <laughs> so, um, That's you know, people are really curious about human origins, and I'm and I'm not different. I'm really curious about who we are, and you know, where we come from, and where and you know where we're going. And it's not just a Christian concern; non-Christians wonder about that too. And, and uh, even though most uh, most scientists affirm evolution, even those that do, many of them really wonder how that ties in with the biblical story. Uh, and even if it, they don't believe Adam and Eve are real, there's even scientists out there looking at the parallels between those two things, and even non-Christian scientists. I think the reason why is when you read Genesis, it's 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 one of the great uh, you know works of world literature out there, right? And yeah. it brings us to grand questions about our place in the world, the, the meaning of civilization, what it means to be good or evil, what makes us the same or different from other animals, uh, and and it's, you know, it, it, all those grand questions are there. And so it invites everyone. And so that's one of the things that really drew me there, too. I mean, I was born and raised a young earth creationist with the, with the Adam and Eve story. Uh, but, you know, I, I became a scientist and encountered evolution and saw it had legitimacy. Um, but I also never quite could get my handle on what everyone thought the conflict was. And so, uh, like, why those two stories couldn't both be true. Mm -hmm. thought they were, but when I looked more closely at scripture and I looked more closely at science, it was really hard to pinpoint what the actual uh, what the actual conflict was. And generally, when I say that, people would just assume that it's because you know you could just give up on any sort of uh, uh, historical interpretation of Genesis, say it's all a myth. And I guess that does resolve uh, all the conflict if that's what you're going to do. But a lot of Christians aren't comfortable doing that. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't really what I meant. I mean, what I meant is even if you take it in a very literal way, um, reading it essentially like a young earth creationist would from a hermeneutical point of view, maybe not with all the same interpretations out the other end, then, you know, 
there isn't a conflict. It, it just isn't in conflict. And people thought I was crazy and I was saying that um, and led to a string of uh, circumstances, uh, good and bad, that had me writing this book uh, somewhat accidentally. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about like the thesis of the book, The Genealogical Adam and Eve, for a second? Because I think if someone's not familiar with their work, they may be like, wait, wait, we have this like secular evolution idea and we have like this young earth creationism over here or a, a literal Adam and Eve and you, you can't fit them the two together. They're at war, right? So can you just talk about like the thesis of the book? Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's a few things. So this is what the book looks like. Can you guys see that there? Yeah, you can. Like the coolest cover I've ever seen for a book. <laughs> Thanks. Did you get a chance to read it, I hope? Yeah, I have. I read it over the summer. Very good book. Yeah, so um, a few things about it. So first of all, this isn't in conflict with mainstream science. This is actually endorsed by leading population geneticists and an atheist scientist. Uh, there's a really great USA Today piece about it by Nathan Lentz. Um, so some of you are thinking this has got to be like junk science, pseudoscience, intelligent design, or, you know, young inspiration. That's actually not what this is. This is actually just good science. Um, then you might be wondering, okay, so then on the scripture side, you must have really, you know, come up with some crazy ideas. Well, actually, I don't know if I really came up with very many new ideas. Um, I, I think kind of pulling it together in a way that just shows how, you know, a lot of other people have interpreted scripture for, you know, really hundreds of years long before even evolution came along. And, um, you know, it does span between a whole bunch of different fields and, and areas, right? So uh, one of the things I was really fortunate to get is I got some funding to actually pull together a, a couple workshops that had about 40 different uh, scholars from across the spectrum come in. Some of them were Christian, some of them were atheists, some of them were Jewish. It included scientists, it included uh, you know, exegetes of people who actually study scripture um, in, in the original language. It also included philosophers, it included Bill Craig, um, and also Walter Bradley from the ID movement. And there's this great picture actually of Nathan Lentz, who's an atheist biologist, in conversation with Walter Bradley from the ID movement. <laughs> uh, just uh, kind of chatting over this. And, and in the background, you can see Alan Templeton, who's this leading population geneticist. So we get to talk about all these things and really find out where the weak points are, were, and what I really needed to do to refine this. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it went really well in that regard, in the sense that uh, all the scientists that reviewed it, Christian and non-Christian, um, really came to agree that, you know, none of the science uh, had an issue with it. I mean, they didn't have any issues. Like, all their objections were resolved. On the scriptural side, too, like, people said, yeah, I mean, these are different points of view, and there's going to be debate about parts of this. But what you're saying, uh, you know, is definitely something that needs to be considered. So, uh, so that's kind of uh, my appeal to authority. <laughs> it's not just me. That's kind of putting this out there. This is really done in community. And I'm. And the next thing I'd also just say about this is it's not actually even saying that this is true. It's just that it's possible. Mm -hmm. And really exploring a large range of things that could be there. So with that now, that laid. So maybe one thing I'm crazy when I make when I kind of put out this crazy thesis because it does sound crazy at first, doesn't it, Zach? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, the thesis of the book is that entirely consistent with all of the genetic and archaeological evidence and science, and I mean that from a mainstream scientific point of view, not challenging mainstream science, entirely consistent with that, Adam and Eve could have been real people in a real past, um, ancestors of us all created without parents de novo. They could have been in the Middle East as recently as just 6,000 years ago. And that um, when they fell, they would have exited the garden that God had specially created for them. And uh, when they left the garden, they would have encountered people out there and, uh, as they interbred with them. 
they became in just a couple thousand years the ancestors of everyone and certainly before jesus ascends to heaven and tells the disciples to, to go out and spread the gospel to the ends of the earth uh, before paul writes romans and romans 5 where it talks about how adam's sin has affected all of humanity before that point uh, they would already be the ancestors of all of us. And so with that, uh, then, you know, the, the story of Adam and Eve could be true. But you're, but you're wondering, well, wait, wait a minute, what's going on here? How does that fit with evolution? Well, I said that they would have encountered people. These would be people that would have been ge genetically just like us, uh, that were from a different theological era, that God created in a different way through a process of common descent, and uh, and you know perhaps even Adam and Eve had a role with them to 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 walk them into a death-free garden, but but they fell, and in that everyone really lost an opportunity. But if that's what was going on, and you know that what could be going on is that the story we get from science is true; it's just not the whole story, and the story we get from scripture is true, and it's just not the whole story. Uh, and the, the two could just be happening alongside one another, and there's really not actually a conflict. And so that's the cool idea. That's the surprising idea that it turns out that that's exactly the case. And we find out too that you know Adam and Eve, if that if that, a story somewhat like that was true, uh, that Adam and Eve, we wouldn't even uh, necessarily. This is one of the surprising uh, head-turning things about this whole thing, is that they might be our uh, ancestors, but they would probably not be giving us any DNA. Mm. It turns out the majority of our ancestors, just a few centuries back. Uh, don't give us any DNA. Uh, they are they're called ghost ancestors or genetic ghosts. They uh, they there are ancestors. I mean, there's a train of ancestors, biological, physical parentage that we can trace back to them. But uh, but because DNA dilutes every generation by fifty percent, uh, there's a certain point where the chances that we got DNA from them, and, you know, is just very very low. So that's what, how we know. That uh, that we can't really tell otherwise either way whether or not they were de novo created. So these are all pretty surprising things that people didn't know. I would say widely um, before just a few years ago when when we started to put together that case, and um, and so it's really great to see the book out and seeing it actually changing the conversation now. Yeah, I remember I was reading your book just like the first time I read through your thesis. I was just like wait, what, this can be true? Like, it was just very kind of like <laughs> wrapping my mind. It's very, very, it seemed like almost like counterintuitive at the moment. But as I read, I'm like, this makes a lot of sense, actually. So I think that's been the reaction generally has just been a, a lot of people can come to agree with you. Obviously, you, you can't make everyone love you, but there's a very good response I've seen. So like, what's the inspiration behind the book? Obviously, you talked about how like this question is so interesting to you. Um, and you have this idea of like human origins, who are Adam and Eve? Where do we come from? Things like that. Like what kind of got you to actually like pen the paper, write the book down? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. Uh, the specific, I mean, so this book, I mean, I actually kind of came out with all of this in summer of 2017, uh, before I had tenure as a professor. So there was some risk involved in that. And then um, I ended up uh, being asked to leave the the speakers bureau at Biologos right after that first article, which wasn't fun. Um, and then uh, I kind of saw, uh, saw a scientist uh, Telling other leaders in the church that there, uh, Biologos saying that there was that there was tons of evidence. Well, 
I don't want to put words in their mouth or say it wrong from memory, but basically not being clear with people who are saying, you know, de novo creation of Adam and Eve is really important to us and not being clear that that's not actually in conflict with evolution. And so that really bothered me. I didn't really feel like it was being upfront and honest with the church. And so uh, that's what really, you know, uh, kind of pushed me to uh, kind of publicly confront them on that, <laughs> which didn't make things better. didn't make things good right initially on that. And, you know, and just really realizing, you know, this is actually something that I think is going to be important for a lot of people in the church. Um, maybe not everyone, not everyone in the church cares, um, but I think a lot of people, it does matter. And so I, I just really wanted to give uh, a fair and truthful account of what science is saying. Now, someone might still say, well, I don't like that because, you know, I just don't want to make space for evolution. That's fine. But scripture doesn't ever really talk about evolution. You can have your preferences. I can't stop you. Uh, but um, but at least you can know that, you know that there is space for what scripture teaches in mainstream science. And if you want to take that path, um, that's great. And if not, um, that's okay. I, I'd love to hear your reasons why. <laughs> and we can talk about that if you want. And so I, I was hoping that maybe it would kind of create a way to have a better sort of dialogue, like a real exchange rather than just, a, and if you look at the oranges of conversation, it's a lot of monologues, right? And a lot of echo chambers, a lot of people talking to themselves. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, uh, you know, it gets boring, frankly, after a while. Yeah. Mm. It's also contentious. I mean, it doesn't really leave space for anyone except for to just parrot what someone more famous than you has said. And I, I just think we could do better. I mean, I think this is supposed to be a place where we're gathering around, you know, grand questions together. And mm. really at the center of this, I mean, you know, well, what happened to have me write pen to paper, as you put it, is like this string of circumstances that kind of almost had me forced to write a book. <laughs> I, I kind of felt boxed in. It was just like as a matter of integrity. It certainly wasn't the right timing for my career. But that is what it is, right? And, you know, my, my secular colleagues were really fair to me, which was really great. Um, but, you know, that's just what happened. But, um, you know, as, I was, as you kind of get into it more deeply, you find out that as you engage with human origins, there's the origins debate in that mess and all the conflict there. And that needs to be dealt with, right? But really, human origins and scripture and even human evolution isn't really about that those things. It's real the reason why people are drawn to these things, independent of these ugly debates, is because it brings us to this question about, about what it means to be human. Mm. And it's that grand question, you know, that underlies all great art, all great philosophy all contemplation on, on morality and what it means to be good mm -hmm. and the nature of the world that we're going to become and what we want it to be. All of that stuff is wrapped up in what it means to be human, right? Even these questions about race and, you know, uh, you know, what is racism? What is the meaning of biological race? Is there such a thing? Uh, these are core. They go straight to this grand question about what it means to be human, uh, to this question about human evolution Adam and Eve and Genesis and where we came from. It certainly matters. And it matters. There's been ugly things there. And there's also been really beautiful things there. And I think there's an opportunity for us to really capture the beauty of that question um, if we approach origins in a different sort of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much there. I'd love to talk a little bit. Like, can you talk about like the science of genealogy behind this book? Because you hit a, 
hit on a couple of really important things. One is the idea of an Adam and Eve about 6,000 years ago. And by the time of Christ, everyone would be descendants to them genealogically. And obviously we have like this idea of race. I remember reading the book and just thinking about like, if we're all come from like genealogical ancestors, how that like changes the idea of race. Could you talk a little bit about like the science of genealogy and what's going on here in the book? Uh, the science of genealogy. So part of it was what we just discussed. So uh, it turns out, I mean, this is pretty surprising, right? It turns mm -hmm. out that uh, our best estimates, our best simulations show that if Adam and Eve lived 6,000 years ago in the Middle East, that they'd be ancestors of everyone before 81. Now, they could also have been more ancient. They could have been around 6,000 years ago, or sorry, 8,000 years ago, or 10,000, or 50,000 years ago. One scientist actually said, I think in 2011, uh, from Biologos, like a, a journalist asked him, you know, how likely is it that uh, we all descend from Adam and Eve? And his answer was, well, that would be against all of the evidence we've found hmm. in the genetic data. Hmm. So not very likely. That's a paraphrase. That's almost exactly what he said. And that just turns out to be wrong. It turns out that, <laughs> that if Adam and Eve were real people in a real past, actually the best science indicates that we would all descend from them. Now, the big conflict that's in most people's head when you say this, but wait a minute, I thought I heard about something about a Y chromosome Adam and a mitochondrial Eve that mm. were 100,000 years ago in the past. Nothing I said is in conflict with that. <laughs> uh, the reason why is that we didn't get our Y chromosome and our mitochondrial genome from Adam and Eve. So, yeah, okay, so that's great. That's, that's, where, that's where we got our DNA from. Uh, that came from outside the garden. That's the story that science is telling, and it's true too. It's just not the story that was important to scripture. We got, uh, we, we all still descend from Adam and Eve. Now the other way how then people will try and respond to that times and say, but wait a minute, you're saying that we don't descend from Adam and Eve alone, exclusively. I said, but no one has claimed that we descend from them alone exclusively. Uh, you go to Reasons to Believe with Uros and Fazrana, they think that we that our ancestors interbred with Neanderthals, and Neanderthals weren't human in their mind. Um, if you go to talk to Ken Ham, they wonder about the idea of, uh, of like humans uh, and Adam and Eve this lineage interbreeding with Nephilim, <laughs> you know, and, and th those are those are pretty, you know, difficult ideas to get your head theologically around. But it turns out, you know, it's actually maybe far easier to wonder about people that were, you know, genetically just like us. We call them human um, from a scientific point of view. They had minds just like ours. It's just that they weren't. The people about which scripture was written. They weren't, I mean, scripture was really about Adam and Eve and their descendants. So, uh, so then, you know, with all that, you know, it just leaves you kind of wondering what exactly is the conflict rather, I mean, other than just like an ad hoc objection to evolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting stuff here. Um, there's a, there's a couple different ways we could go, but like, what do you think are some of like the more common objections you'll see uh, to your work, especially like We'll start on the theological side because I think there's a really interesting question. And you go into this in your book. It's like, what does it mean to be made in the image of God and how would that impact like Adam and Eve and their descendants? So like when you're looking at a question um, like that, people would be like, hey, are those people outside the garden, let's say at the time of Adam and Eve, are they made in the image of God? Do they have like a soul? Um, things like that. So like when you look at these questions, like how do you wrestle with them? They're obviously really important questions like being made in the image of God. Well, so first of all, this does raise a lot of theological questions, but you can't really uh, answer these questions without really returning to theology. Mm -hmm. One thing that I found, uh, both in my own upbringing, I mean, I was never trained as a theologian, right? I was I'm a Protestant. We tend to be kind of disconnected from our history. 
and kind of just uh, pick up the Bible and read it, which isn't a bad thing to do, to be clear. I mean, I still pick up the Bible and, read it and I encourage you to use you also. But, you know, we're also part of the church and God makes, uh, you know, you know, really guides the church as a whole to understand things. Uh, and so sometimes we can be a bit too individualistic. And one thing that I really found is that there's a real value in engaging the traditions of the church and to understand how other people have really looked at and understood these things. There's a lot of things that I took for granted about, well, X means Y. You know, or you know, image of God means this. Well, actually, if you talk to uh, people who are a lot more informed about Hebrew, how people have understood in the past and different traditions, even in the church alive today, you find out there's actually a lot of disagreement about what the image of God is. Mm. And, you know, maybe some of them are right, or maybe each of them are different aspects of the story, and maybe some of them are wrong. But the key point is, though, is depending on how you conceive the image of God, maybe you think the people outside the garden are in the image of God too. That may not be a problem. So then, then what's the problem? The other possibility is that an image of God doesn't mean exactly what you think it is. And so it wouldn't even be a problem if Adam and Eve were in the image of God and others weren't. Um, and so, you know, you, you just have to start unpacking those things. It gets, it's the same when it comes to the original sin and, and to the, it's all these little notions uh, that we have and we've just kind of nurtured as to be, you know, true to the point that we don't even question. We think it's just obvious, but the reality is that those were just hidden assumptions that we made. And I think what's really cool about this story and what, what's really interesting about it is that it's an invitation to theology in that regard. It really brings us back to really learn about these things. So one of the chapters is on, uh, on what are humans in science? And I get into all the complexity and determining there, but then the chapter after that is what is humans in, in theology? And I spend a lot of time unpacking uh, the different ways people have understood the image of God. And uh, it's really common from a lot of readers that, that, to hear to hear it's like, oh, I had no idea that there was all these different ways of understanding the image of God. And, uh, and it matters if you're going to start thinking about questions like this. So you kind of have to get a little bit educated and to understand why people are thinking different things and, and then realize also that maybe there's many ways that it can all come together and make sense. Um, in line with sacred history, right? So in line with, with evolution. So there's natural history, which we get through evolution. There's sacred history, which we get from scripture. There's actually many ways that we can put it all together. Uh, I don't I don't actually give a final solution here. I, I mean, I do kind of put out one possible way to think about it, but it, it's skimpy on a lot of detail. It doesn't even really say when an Adam and Eve precisely lived. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really an invitation to come fill in the blanks and see what makes most sense and really approach that grand question together. I mean, even if you think evolution is a complete myth, it doesn't really matter. Just come play the game with us. If you think Adam and Eve are a myth, it doesn't matter either. Come play the game with us. It's it's supposed to be part of that grand conversation to wonder together about what it means to be human. Mm. I'm curious, you talk about, um, you come from like a young earth background um, and obviously now you're a scientist, you, you accept the theory of evolution. Like, could you talk a little bit kind of like about that process of coming from very, you know, maybe some young earthers would even say heretical beliefs into with evolution. Like, can you talk a little bit about like your transition from how you got to uh, this young earth background to where you are today? Yeah, I don't think young earth creationism per se is heretical. No, I meant to say like they may think evolution. Um, oh yeah, they certainly thought. Yeah, young earth creationism. Yeah, and you know, I, I think at a certain point, I just have to figure out if I trusted God's word or man's word more. I mean, if I trusted what people said about scripture, I would probably either be a young earth creationist that hated science or, or hated evolution, or I would be an atheist. 
Uh, that's probably probably one of those two poles. But um, in the end, I, I mean, I just decided that God's word was more important. And, and what scripture actually said was far more important than what people said about it. Mm. And so, uh, and, I, and I realized just how far uh, scientific young earth creationism deviated from what the text of scripture actually said and demanded. And, and you know, so a big part of it was actually reading scripture. And that was probably the first thing. And when I could realize that, okay, I don't actually think evolution's true, but at least I know that if it was true, it wouldn't be that big of a deal mm. for, in terms of scripture. I can see how it can make sense. Um, and to be clear, a big part of that was seeing how Adam and Eve fit into it. But, and that's one part that everyone thought I was crazy when I would say it. But that's why I ended up having to write this book. Okay, <laughs> um, So there's that. Um, but then the second piece that came after that is actually getting a chance to look at the evidence myself. And um, it, you know, part of it was the evidence for an old earth. But really, the key thing is looking, was looking at the evidence for uh, that the humans share common ancestry with the great apes. Mm. And that means like chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, and orangutans. And that came out, I mean, the human genome came out in 2000 when I graduated from undergrad. And in 2005, when I was in my PhD, the chimpanzee genome came out. And I could really see that, you know, there's like all these fine-grained, detailed predictions about our genomes that are really being validated. That it could have been different. God could have created this different. But he didn't. Now, of course, that doesn't rule out special creation. Mm -hmm. I mean, as I've shown, like God could have been creating alongside of uh, uh, evolution, and that wouldn't be any sort of philosophical, scientific, or theological problem. He can do that, right? I mean, he made he made water from wine. Why can't he make a person out of dust? <laughs> yeah. But um, but you know, I you know, as I saw the evidence, you know, I think it was really challenging. Honestly, there's this point where I realized, hey, you know, God, it really seems that uh, you know. I mean, I believe you designed us all and you created us all, but it doesn't seem like one of your goals was producing a lot of evidence against common descent. That wasn't really important to you. Why not? Because that seems pretty important to me. <laughs> and I kind of had to sit there and realize, well, wait a minute, do I want to be like you or not? Am I trying to follow you or not? And I think that uh, in the end, you know, I, I just don't think that disproving evolution was uh, nearly as important to God as it was to most of us, or at least it was to me. And so I think there was like a healthy ambivalence that took over. I mean, I, I really honestly don't care if evolution is true or false. I do think that as a scientist, I want to be honest uh, with the church, even if it's hard to hear, that there really does seem to be a lot of evidence for common descent. Mm. And, you know, if you don't think that's true, you, you, you know, you're kind of fooling yourself. There's a lot of legitimacy to evolution, even if it's not ultimately correct. And I can tell you for certain it's not the whole story. Um, it certainly leaves space for God's action in the world and all of that. And we have to grapple that reality. And uh, you don't have to accept evolution, but it's a reality that God just wasn't as concerned with disproving evolution as maybe, you know, a lot of us have been concerned with that. And, uh, and what it really came down to is, you know, it was first seeing scripture, second seeing science, but then the last part was maybe the hardest and the most difficult because it was an attitude of the heart. I had to lay down my anti-evolution idols and follow Jesus. Mm. And so for me, at least, uh, you know, all the anti-evolution science that I've been reading um, and even intelligent design and all that, it was just me encountering Jesus and then turning to worship the human effort to prove God from science mm. and trying to put my confidence in a place that was never meant to hold my confidence. And instead of really looking to what God did through Jesus, raising him from the dead, I was looking to other things. 
And so I had to let go of my anti-evolution idols. I had to put them down and I had to follow and I had to follow him. And I did. And that was the right thing to do. So would you say that you're like there's different kinds of people who would probably tend to accept evolution. There are people who would say only possible underneath like the guidance of God or maybe like like very strict naturalism and kind of like understanding the theory of evolution. Like do you take a position on that whole debate on like how the evolutionary process occurred? Well, yeah. So I think in a lot of ways it mirrors what I did in my book. I, I don't think that we get enough information from science or from scripture to adjudicate those things. Let's take it from a scriptural point of view or like a theological point of view. The traditional, uh, you know, belief is that I affirm that God providentially governs all things, including the random cast of lots. And if God, you know, you know, governs how a dice rolls, why should I be worried about apparently random mutations, right? Mm. Moreover, uh, the traditional view is that, you know, God doesn't, and we can't really discern precisely how God governs things to his ends, or even what his ends are, unless he tells us. And so that's where Christianity is a, you know, a religion that's really based around revelation, right? You know, at some point, God has to tell you some things because they're hidden from view. And this actually matches how it is with humans. Like, you know, I can observe you, Zach, doing things, but I'm never going to really know why you do this unless I ask you. Like, I mean, for example, you invited me onto your podcast. I can make some guesses that are probably reasonable, but on a certain level, I won't really be able to know why you invited me onto this, like on a personal level, mm -hmm. unless I ask you and you give me a truthful answer and I can believe it, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so that's kind of how it is in normal relationships. Like, you know, we can make guesses and inferences, but at a certain point, you kind of have to ask people. You know, for the vast majority of things, you know, you, you have to ask people and, and, and trust them. Now, that's, I think, how it works with God's providence. We know that God providentially governs all things. We don't know how and we don't always know to what purpose. We don't usually know, I would say. That's what scripture says. Now, um, what does science say? Well, this is the part where I do take a hard stand. I think some people have argued incorrectly that we have strong evidence that God was directly involved in particular ways. I think that that evidence is wildly overblown. On the same token, there's a lot of people out there saying they have strong evidence that God wasn't involved or that he was unnecessary or, you know, you know natural processes alone were sufficient. Well, that's a, that's a metaphysical statement that goes beyond what science says. I think we can say there, I think we can legitimately say it's a, it's not readily apparent how God was necessary. I think that's true. I think it's not readily apparent how he did anything, but that doesn't mean he didn't do things and he wasn't necessary. You see the difference? Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's a type of studied agnosticism, which I think is a much more, um, it's much more true to Orthodox Christianity, how we think about providence. Mm -hmm really good uh, a couple more questions here and if anyone listening has live questions we'll hit a few on the way out um but for a lot of people i've noticed like especially maybe coming from like a young earth background when they kind of move away from that you see a lot of people deconstruct from their faith even abandon their faith a lot of them will become atheists i know i can think of numerous popular atheists right now who once they discarded this idea of like a young earth they uh, immediately become atheists so like in your journey, obviously you're still a Christian theist, go Christians. Um, but like, what kind of kept your like belief in God through this whole process? Cause I think for some people it can be a very like uh, challenging process to remain, like um, to continue to have a belief in God. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, like, especially if you listen to Christians, a lot of Christians in science, they'll tell you really crazy things. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, young earth creationists tell you that you should have confidence in scripture because of creation science. And that if you find out creation, and that's why you believe in Jesus, right? Mm. And so, you know, um, and so it's a very fear-driven sort of epistemology, right? Uh, and so if that's what you've been taught and that's what you believe, uh, then, you know, you might come to believe that crazy logic, which is complete nonsense. And then as you realize that creation science uh, is a mess and not trustworthy, then it all falls apart. Well, if they were wrong about evolution and they were wrong about creation science, maybe they were also wrong about the relationship of creation science to the core of Christianity. Mm. So, you you know, don't trust them so much about this stuff. I mean, read it for yourself. And the part that I will agree with a lot of these atheists, I'll also say, um, you know, atheists, you know, you, you should be really careful about saying negative things about them. A lot of them have seen really weird stuff in the church, things, you know, you know dishonesty. And what they did was a step of integrity to say, I don't want to have anything to do with mm. it. Yeah. And, uh, and they often have done it in a way that was costly personally with their mm. family and risky. I wish that more Christians had that type of integrity that I've seen in some atheist friends. So, that's not the issue. Frankly, if all I saw was young earth creationism or even just even churches, even good churches, I mean, they're so obviously man-made. This isn't worth giving your life to. And so uh, I think for me, that's what it really came down to. If this is all man-made, you know, I should walk away, go do something else. You know, it's too costly anyway. <laughs> so why do this? Um, and so I really looked to really see what here is not man-made. And I found something. There was one thing that I found when I looked at Christianity across all religions that made it worth putting up with crazy Christians. Mm. That made it worth putting up with senseless churches and all these weird things that I did not make sense of. And even uh, being willing to publicly associate with you know all of this nonsense. Um, and there's quite a bit of nonsense. I, I, I hope that's not offending anyone. <laughs> But but there really is, and if you don't see that, I don't know what to tell you exactly. But um, what I found was I found that that this person Jesus, you know, it's talked about in the Gospels. I read him, and he was compelling and he was beautiful. And then as I looked around for evidence, I found out there was actually an immense amount of evidence just out in the world that we all share, like you know, whether it be you know uh, manuscripts or you know, carbon dating of like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, you know, the prophecies written before Jesus's time, like, for example, Isaiah 53, um, and all of these stuff in, like, the testimony of the church, the comparator movements at the time, what happened in the Messiah movements at the time, and how Jesus's, the Jesus movement was different. Mm. You start to see that, and it really does look like, you know, the God of all creation doing the most inconceivable thing of all, of actually kind of reaching through and interjecting into the, into the history of humankind to make himself known in this clear way. And while I can see a lot of problems in churches and in, in Christians, um, in both those that were famous and close to me, and and you know, and all of that was more than enough reason to walk away. Mm. I saw Jesus. I saw him, and I encountered him. And as I, and I saw that he was good. And as I as I continued to walk with him, I found that that you know, there was a reality. There wasn't a good reality. You know, and and that, that his kingdom was a good kingdom, and I wanted to see it on earth too. And so there's this point where you know you you, uh, you know you see the facts, and there's a certain point where you also start to fall in love. Mm. 
And for me, I mean, I think encountering Jesus, I encountered Jesus and I trusted him and I, and I went out with him and I spent time. And then there's this point where you just fall deeper and deeper into, into knowing that this is something good. And um, I think what it's done actually is really, uh, it hasn't made me uh, get to the point where I'm willing to, I'll tell you what, with the background that I've had and what I've seen in encountering the goodness of Jesus, I uh, am not really willing to cover for Christians doing nonsense. Mm. And so uh, that's part of what's gotten me in trouble. Like, you know, I think the core thing here, I mean, a key reason why I left Young Earth Creationism is I just saw so much dishonesty at the time. I mean, I left that um, before I figured out the whole evolution stuff later on. And, you know, you know, even, I mean, you should, you know, I don't, I don't think, God needs our dishonesty. Mm. I just don't think that that's what he's asking for from us, mm. even if it's well-intentioned and good. Um, and I found that, that, you know, there was like, there was just more, it was just more trustworthy, like uh, to, to look at things in a different way and to have more confidence in, you know, in a different place. And so anyways, that, that's part where I've gotten in trouble because when I've seen Christians not being honest, I, I, I've called them out on it. Um, in the origins debate, and that doesn't go over so well, I've found. But <laughs> um, but in the end, I mean, I, I think the church really deserves uh, scientists to be honest with, with, with her about what's going on. Yeah. Mm, yeah, thank you so much. I, I think a couple more things here. Obviously, so you're a scientist by training, and for a lot of people, they see science as like the only way to truth, you know, the, the whole idea of scientism. Um, I was talking with an atheist and it's like we need testable, repeatable evidence that God exists, things like that. Um, so as a scientist, a lot of people be like, wait, you believe in God? You can't prove God exists. So very briefly, like how do you respond to that? I'm curious just because you're a trained scientist. Like what's your thoughts on that? Oh, well, there's a couple of things. First of all, only a non-scientist could say that science is the only way to, to truth. That's just absurd. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, there's no, there's no credible uh, philosopher of science that thinks that anymore. I mean, scientists themselves don't think that. And it's actually, it's, it's just kind of a crazy, ridiculous thought. Um, let me give you some examples of things that, uh, that you can't demonstrate with science that are important. You know, ask them to prove to you that racism is wrong. Mm -hmm. And then to see him flounder around and, you know, he, maybe he could, might show that racism is harmful, but harmful to who? And why is it wrong to be harmful? Mm. Well, is racism wrong or not? And, you know, some of the more honest ones will say, well, maybe it's not wrong uh, if we don't want it to be wrong. But that's kind of a scary world. So you're trying to say that racism isn't actually wrong. So I'm just trying to tell you, like, those sorts of moral questions, scientists have always agreed that, you know, you know, science can't really tell you. And there's a lot of really important moral things out there that we all think are true um, that, you know, you have to arrive at a different way. But also there's a lot of personal knowledge that you can't get to in science. So, I mean, I marry my wife, Victoria, right? Um, I know that she really loves me. There's not a single peer-reviewed publication that, that says repeatedly that Victoria Swamidas loves Josh Swamidas. It's just not there. And that's a pretty important decision. I remember when I asked her to marry me, you know, uh, a little over seven years ago. You know, it's it's a major decision. And, and you don't have, you, you can't, I couldn't put her in a well-controlled test. I couldn't do multiple replicates. There's this point where you go out and you have to, you have to take a leap of faith in a relationship, uh, not knowing what the future holds, right? And I still think that she loves me. But I don't have a way to scientifically demonstrate that. 
And uh, that's something I know, even though um, I don't know it from science. So there's just a lot of stuff we don't know from science. And I think we have to start thinking about things like that because the fact of the matter is, is God made himself known well before science was even invented. So clearly he was making himself known in a way that was different than science. And what it says is that he's made himself known through Jesus. So by raising him from the dead, and there's a ton of evidence for it. So the issue is you want logical evidence that you can look at. You want to see what other experts are thinking about doing that. That's all there. Go for it. Go study it. But don't don't pretend like it's not. There's no evidence, right? Mm. Yeah, or, uh, it's not scientific. Yeah, yeah, I'm tracking with you. Um, one more question. We'll do a little bit of Q and A at the end here. Um, the last thing I think about is the process of evolution. It's inevitably going to involve a lot of death, a lot of animal suffering, um, and probably the most common form of the argument from evil now from an atheist is the evidential problem of evil, where it's like, this is exactly what you'd expect under atheism is all the suffering and death, but with this all-loving God, would we expect him to use like a process, um, and they may use the words as like as brutal as evolution. So obviously I know you're a scientist by training. Well, I think that's first of all well confused stuff. about, uh, that's first of all, it sounds like a young earth creationist argument. Mm -hmm. And I think the first thing to do, I would do, is kind of confront on that. It's like, why would you actually trust uh, a young earth creationist argument against evolution <laughs> and see how they would handle that? Because, I mean, give me a break. That That's a clearly one-sided argument. So, yes, there's a lot of suffering and death, and not just evolution, but in an old earth, right? Mm -hmm. But let's be clear here. There's also a lot of, uh, of uh, joy in life. In an old earth, there's far more life and joy in an old earth than you could have in a young earth. Mm. And, you know, if you talk about the problem of evil, well, that's actually been well known in theology and been talked about for a long time. Alvin Plantinga actually kind of solved the logical problem for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, and I do think there's still an emotional problem, but I think, there, but actually, I think that's it doesn't actually work the way people think. If you actually look at the people who've suffered the most, what's really interesting about them is most of them or many of them report an experience of being drawn closer to God or to the divine through that or spiritual things, which is really bizarre. It's exactly opposite of what you predict. I think what's going on is it's not so much that uh, the puzzle is why is there suffering in the world? I think there's several other puzzles to look at. The bigger puzzle is why is it when really bad things happen that even atheists rage at them and wonder why life is so unfair? Why is it that we had the sense in the first place that life should be fair? that's puzzling <laughs> because you're right. If there is no God, it should be completely expected on an emotional level that it's going to suck and it's going to be crummy, except for we don't. We actually, you know, generally speaking, of course, there's going to be exceptions. Most of us really look at that and we say, wow, I, I kind of wanted something better. This kind of sucks. <laughs> I wanted that. And, and that's the puzzle. Why do we, why do we, why are we like Job? Why are we kind of raging at God when these bad things happen? Mm. I think it's because that's actually one of the ways how we know. And it's also us, you know, we're actually children of the garden. We know we're made for something better and that we lost it. Mm. It's really deeply embedded in who we are. It has, it's how we have an eternity in our hearts. It's actually what draws us to God. Now, the other issue too, I'd say is, uh, you know, with all this talk about the problem of evil, I think the bigger uh, questions that are right there next to the atheists are questions about the problem of beauty. You know, why is everything so beautiful? Why does everything, uh, you know, it's not so much, you know, yeah, there is suffering and death, and there's an account of that in theology, right? But why is there so much beauty? And, and there isn't actually a very good of account of beauty mm. in, in evolution.
I mean, it is beautiful in a way that, that, that is very hard to give an account for. And, uh, and you know, the, the type of beauty that we see, like, well, I mean, like a great example of this is, is when you talk to like professional mathematicians, they'll sometimes sit there in tears looking at the beauty of, uh, you know, Einstein's equations or, <laughs> or, these, or these like mathematical truths they find that, you know, how did that arise? How did that beauty, that ability to see abstract beauty in that way arise? I mean, there isn't a good account of that. I'm not saying that that demonstrates God exists, but that's a deep tension within a purely naturalistic framework. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, and I'm not trying to use that as like a knockdown, drag out argument for God, but rather say, hey, look, we're all dealing with this transcendent reality mm -hmm. that kind of, kind of bursts out of our simple views of it. Maybe we should be kind of embracing the paradox of these things together instead of just trying to debate with one another and kind of wanting up each one another. And so let's try and take a hold of this reality that's kind of too big for each of us to hold. Uh, that might be more fun, and we might learn more from it. So that's kind of how I see it. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's great, definitely. Um, shout out to Planiga for taking out the logical problem of evil. Uh, we'll go to a little bit of Q&A here. Uh, a question from Zachary Lawson says, can you explain uh, the most recent four alleles, probably pronounced that wrong, and how it's different from typical population genetic calculations? Yes, yeah, so this is the time to most recent uh, four alleles. So this gets to some stuff that I've been doing with uh, uh, William Lane Craig. Uh, it's going to be coming out in, a, in the book that he's publishing. It's actually in press right now. And we're going to be also writing a little bit ourselves together about it. It's also, there's a great blog uh, post that uh, Bill Craig wrote for Peaceful Science you can check out. And how is it different than typical population genetics calculations? Well, there's been a lot of work to estimate population sizes in the past, but they only estimate um, average population sizes in the past. So uh, at different times, it could have been lower than that. And that's been really misrepresented at times as uh, putting a hard limit on and ruling out an Adam and even that's just not true. So there's also been a people really focused on looking at the time to the uh, most recent common ancestor scientific, I mean, uh, genetically. And that puts, uh, you know, I mean, that, that, that's like, you know, Y chromosome Adam and mitochondrial Eve and all that. And so if there's no people outside the garden, then we would get all of our DNA from Adam and Eve. And that would push back Adam and Eve to over 100,000 years ago. But the problem is that that only looks at about 1% of the genome. So we um, were talking about this, a group of scientists really trying to figure out how to make sense of this. And, um, and we kind of came up with a way of thinking about it by actually looking at the rest of the genome, at the autosomal genome, to find out, you know, like, let's just assume that, there, that God created um, Adam and Eve with a lot of heterozygosity, and there were no people outside the garden. And uh, can we actually see if there's any evidence that conflicts with that? So it's a little bit different than what I talked about in my book, where there's people outside the garden. But in this case, there's not. And if you do that, um, then you find out that what you can do is you can actually look at all of the parts of the autosomal genome and see when is it that they, um, when is it in time that we think that there was only four allelic lineages across the genome? Uh, so four versions for every part of the genome. And uh, so that avoids making, you know, this straw man assumption of, um, Adam and Eve being homozygous clones, like there's actually a four versions at every single position. And it, and it comes out around half a million years ago or so is about when that is. So if there's no people outside the garden and they, and they had biology like ours, uh, then, you know, we think that they'd have to be at least, you know, uh, about a half a million years ago in the past. And that's, that's kind of where um, uh, Bill Craig is going with this. So he's open to the idea of there being some interbreeding too. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, next question here is from Caruso Apologetics. Interesting question. Um, it says, how would you tackle the issue of original sin with people outside of the garden? That's a great question. So there's probably three chapters in the book dealing with that in different ways. Um, and, uh, and so I think the, the key thing is that when people have talked about uh, how original sin passes tests traditionally, it's always been, well, not always, for the most part, it's been understood as by natural descent from Adam and Eve. But natural descent never meant genetic descent. It just meant the natural descent, you know, the way how you naturally perceive it. Genetic descent is something very recent that we only came up with in the last, you know, uh, came to understand the last, you know, century. But if you go back to a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago, you know, to Aquinas or to, uh, to Augustine or, or any of them, when they talked about descent, they were talking about, you know, just ordinary ancestry. So, um, so that's how it's been traditionally understood. Now, some people in more recent times have wondered if it has to be through descent and people who talk about representative types of views, and some of that's all covered, but I, uh, but, but that may not be sufficient for certain traditions or, or, you know, if it's, it's definitely a departure from historical Christianity. And so I think what it does is it really raise questions about how we should think theologically about genealogical descent. And um, I propose a couple ways to think about that. I talk about this idea about how we might inherit a dependency on our ancestors, like a causal dependency on them. And if you kind of think back to like uh, Back to the Future, if you're, I mean, I was raised in the 80s, so I remember watching that, you know, um, Marty uh, McFly, he, you know, he, his parents may not end up actually getting together. And so he starts disappearing. There's like a causal dependency that he has on his parents getting together, right? And that's uh, like a total dependency. So if his grandparents got this, you know, killed in an excursion, then he wouldn't exist anymore, right? So you take that idea, um, which is, uh, you know, just playing around this idea. One possibility is that, you know, we all depend on Adam and Eve. We all depend on even the fact that they sinned and were kicked out of the garden. And the fact that Abel was killed um, by Cain. And this point that we're all dependent on all of the sin. And so we're inheriting this debt that, if we, were, that we can't even really pay. Um, and... And yeah, we also sin ourselves, but we also have lost the right to enter the garden because of this. Uh, I kind of worked out in a lot more detail. Some people are gonna disagree with this and that's fine. Um, I mean, it, there's other ways to look at it. Um, there's this thing called covenant theology for Presbyterians they really focus on. That just kind of fits in there naturally. Basically in this covenant that God makes to Adam, he writes in this rule that's fairly ad hoc anyways in covenant theology that, that you know, if he sins, it's gonna affect all of his descendants. And so if that's what happened, well, then that's what happened. Um, and so that's it. Now, the other question that comes up is about death and how do you deal with the death of the people outside the garden? The key thing to remember is that Romans uh, says, doesn't talk about death to all in all animal kind or in all creation. It's just talking about death to all mankind. And at the time it's written, all mankind is descended from Adam and Eve. Scripture isn't really talking about uh, the people outside the garden. Hmm. And so... Uh, and so they, you know, he has the complete right to make people that, uh, you know, have a limited temporal existence and, you know, and it, it's good in his eyes in the same way, you know, animals are out there living, but, you know, these are, these are humans, though. They have the minds and everything like ours. He has the right to do that. Do they have uh, immortal souls? Does he give some other way, some other dispensation for them to get grace or, and all that? Well, we don't know, um, but maybe, I mean, maybe we'll find out that there's Neanderthals in heaven. Um, and that there's, and that there, there's archaic people uh, there. I mean, and that would be great, or maybe not. Maybe they pass into oblivion, and that's okay too. I mean, God has a right to do what He wants. It's really an incredible privilege that we uh, we can enter into covenantal relationship with Him now. But 
but that doesn't somehow obligate God to have done that in the past. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, one more question here uh, from Crusoe again. It says, uh, what do you think of John Garvey's companion to your book? I think it's incredibly convincing and fleshes out your theory very well. Yeah, that's great. So that's called The Generations of Heaven of Earth by John Garvey. So John Garvey is a, he's a physician who got halfway through his uh, PhD in theology and then dropped out. And he's retired now. He's out in, uh, and he has this really great blog called um, the, the Campbell's Hump. And he's been uh, blogging about this stuff for about a decade now. And uh, I kind of entered the conversation probably around, you know, 2012 or 2015, you know, 15, depending on how you want to count it. But then, and I found his blog and he, back in uh, 2000, I think it was around 2012 or so, or 2011, he kind of, he kind of struck him to wonder about something like a lot like the genealogical Adam and Eve. He didn't have the scientific uh, uh, credentials to really, you know, bridge some of those gaps and answer all the questions. Um, and then he just really couldn't find a lot of people that were interested, but he's been thinking about it. And then as I kind of picked this up, he started writing a lot more and I told him, Hey, you know, John, you really got to write, write this book. I think it's great. So um, my book really shows what's possible scientifically and says that it's allowable. He goes one step further and says, you know, it's not just that this is allowable, this really helps theology. This really makes the, the whole thing work better. So it's not, this is not, uh, this is not like something you should just make space for that. This is really what I think should be going on. And he has a particular way of working it out. And I do think it isn't, it is convincing. His book is called the generations of heaven and earth. I really do recommend it. And um, he might be a great person to have uh, on the, on, have here too, uh, to talk about it. Uh, and I think he just explains, I mean, you know, how it makes sense from a scriptural and a theological point of view. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. Um, we're here at the end of the time. Obviously, we covered a lot of really good information, but is there anything you want to like bring up before we wrap things up, something that we may have skipped over or anything? Uh, yeah, I, I would just say, uh, well, definitely come check us out at Peaceful Science if you if you want to join the conversation. I think, uh, I think you know, we, we just have an opportunity to leave 160 years of conflict behind. It was about 160 years ago, a little bit over that, uh, you know, Origin of the Species was published, and right after that, you know, literally 160 years ago now, there was all these debates between Owen and Huxley about, you know, the, the hippocampus and whether or not, you know, apes have a hippocampus. Owen said no, that that was unique to humans and that's how we knew they were specially created. Um, you know, flash ahead, we find out that actually monkeys and apes really do have hippocampi too, even rats do. <laughs> um, that, that wasn't a very good argument against evolution. But, you know, that's what the debate was about, you know, okay, so maybe evolution's true, but does it really apply to humans? And we've been debating and fighting about the Scopes trial. That was like the, the fears underlying a lot of the discussion at, uh, at the, you know, we're in the 15 year anniversary. It was exactly, I mean, we're 15 years ago to the day, we were in the middle of the, of the, um, what trial was that? It was a Dover trial with intelligent design. And, you know, We've been fighting about this for 160 years. You know, for like how many generations is that? That's like six or seven generations. You know, we have a chance now. Let's do something better. I mean, especially if you're one of the students and the young people here who's like under 30, give me a break. Don't you want something better than endless conflict? Something that looks better than that that debate you saw last night? This is your chance. Let, let's go actually, let's just show our, you know, our parents that there is a better way forward that doesn't require all this nonsense, all this conflict. Yeah, that debate was rough. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, it's funny, Wall Street Journal compared it to WWE or like wrestling, right? But then said, but wait a minute, that might actually insult the wrestlers. <laughs> 
it was pretty bad. Um, Dr. <laughs> Swamidas, thank you so much for your time. There's so much information here. I encourage everyone to check out Peaceful Science. Um, and if you're new to it here in Apologetics, I encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, um, leave a review. You can follow us. And if you enjoy the show, you can support the show on patreon.com slash adhere in apologetics. We're about 75% funded, give or take. So you can pledge as little as a dollar a month. Your support goes a long way. Uh, Dr. Swamidas, one more time. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure.